Welcome to Coffee, Grief, and Gratitude. I'm Maria Gibson, and this is my mom, Annie Gunger. We're a mom-daughter team who talk about grief. We started this podcast to learn more about grief and to be part of the conversation in normalizing grief. We're not looking for any answers because there really aren't any. We're just looking to have different conversations. So here's a little bit about us. My, my biggest story, my biggest grief was being widowed when I was 28 and pregnant with Maria's older brother. Everything in my world changed, eventually for the good, and that took time. Eventually there was Scott, my amazing husband, then Maria, our beautiful daughter. I'm fond of saying that grief is the source of my superpowers. It's where I learned to not take time for granted. It's where I learned compassion and love in a bigger, deeper way. It's where I learned to be, be a beauty seeker, a joy seeker. I wrote my way through grief. I filled stacks of journals. Years later, I wrote a memoir. The Fifth Chamber by Ann Gudger is a story of love and loss. The Fifth Chamber, as in, if your heart had a fifth chamber, what would you fill it with? It's my grief story and how I found my way back to me, how I found my way back to love and a beautiful life. The fifth chamber is coming out in September, I'm delighted to tell you. We'll put a link for a pre-order in the show notes. For me, I was raised by my mom here who was grieving. Grief was very normalized in our home. It's something we talked about often around the dinner table or in the car. One of the things I've realized as I've grown up here is that when we don't share our griefs, they become secrets and tear people up. But in sharing them, we can connect with each other on a deep level. Over the past couple years, I've lost multiple people in my life and several horses and cats. I feel many deaths in my life have been major benchmarks in how I view the world. We like to say that grief is transformative. You don't need to stay stuck in the hard parts. Grief is one of life's certainties. It allows us to be connected to each other's humanity. If you're here in the early stages of grief, we're here to say it's hard. We're here to say to be kind to yourself and thank yourself for showing up, for being curious about what grief could look like in its wholeness. These conversations aren't a prescription. We're just here offering a little bit of hope and possibly another perspective on grief. So as we like to say, grab your coffee and let's talk. Today, we're delighted to welcome Nikki Darling, who will read a piece of her writing, and then we'll be in conversation with her. Hi, Nikki. Hi, Anne. Hi, Maria. Thank you both for having me. I feel really honored to be here. Um, the work that you guys do is so beautiful, and um, it means a lot to me to be able to, um, to tell the stories of the ways that um, grief has affected my life. Oh. We're so, we are so grateful to have you here. Thank you so much for coming with us. First, I'll read Nikki's bio and then she'll share some writing with you. Nikki Darling is a seeker, but people and possibilities usually find her first. She makes friends while waiting in line at the grocery store, but also doesn't take kindly to being told she should smile more. She spends her work time trying to dissuade teenagers from outsourcing their voice and creativity to, to chat GPT. She spends her life hours in a near constant state of awe over her three adult daughters and her teenage son. 
She lives in Sao Paulo, Brazil, and becomes more Brazilian by the day. Please welcome Nikki. Thank you. Um, Today, uh, I'm going to read a piece that I wrote a couple of months ago, and I was really reflecting on um, how my husband's death had affected my parenting. So uh, that's what this piece is about. Somehow, it is already after 9 p.m. I have a wide and strong support community and plenty of resources, but even still, being a single parent is hard. I have four kids, but only one who's still a child, a son, 13, capable, smart, independent. Even still, being a single parent is hard. To enroll my son for school next year, I had to edit the form I'd filled out last year. I had to delete Rob's name, his phone number, our shared address, and his relationship, father, from the boxes under parent two. When I went to the gym today, I wore last year's Run Against Cancer t-shirt. When I get this year's shirt, Rob's name will be on the back, along with the names of other loved people. The swing of erasure and rendering is forceful. I'm paying lawyers to work on estate matters here in Brazil. I spend evening hours, actual hours, on the phone with banks and social security offices in the US. The space between work and sleep must be productive or else the list never gets shorter. Also, the list never gets shorter. I think about that thing I was told as a child about lizards losing their tail and then growing it back again. All of the US documents I have in my possession must be sent back to the US to be apostilled and then sent back to Brazil to the courts. I must work with Oregon and Michigan and Brazilian bureaucracies to do this. Two states must certify the papers for a third state. They must all agree that he was born, that he worked, and that he died. The apostille stickers are metallic and shiny and look a little like the seal on a bottle of whiskey that's been shipped from one state to another. Sometimes I mention his name or tell a story about something he did or liked or thought. I've said before that grief and death have taught me that we continue our relationships with loved ones long after they are gone. They visit, sometimes invited, sometimes an inconvenient drop-in. I've learned that they must always be welcomed in. Tea is always on for the dead. Long before Rob passed, he couldn't eat or drink the same things my son and I did. But still today, I've not learned how to cook for only two people. I'm getting better but there are always little containers in the fridge. When I divorced my first husband, we didn't do everything right, but eventually we settled into a metronome rhythm of exchanged duties. When my dad died, my ex and I committed to co-parenting with our three girls at the center, and we let our anger, petty against the backdrop of the death of a man we both loved, die too. Our respective partners were fundamental in that. I was never really a single parent in those days. This role, the sole decider, calendar maker, account manager, nightmare calmer, hangnail fixer, fits like a loose combat uniform on a politician. I make dinner at eight instead of six. And in the background, there's a nature show and David Attenborough narrates in a voice that has existed for all time. He says with a sadness simultaneously authentic and contrived, 
and now she and her cub must fend for themselves. The night vision filming is green and grainy. This episode is 20 years old. I decide that the half of an avocado already on its last hour is not, not worth saving, and I toss it. My son and I eat, laugh a little, clear the plates. I haven't showered. Somehow it is already after 9 p.m. Oh, Nikki, thank you so much. That was so, so beautiful. And I so just deeply appreciate your vulnerability and honesty and showing us some of what is honestly the dailiness that is just so hard when we're grieving and when we've gone from being, being coupled to being single. So beautiful. And I was really struck by the paperwork going back and forth because that seems to be a thread. Not that we've always talked on these podcasts, but just through a lot of people talking with them after losing somebody that it's the loss, but then the daily hourly losses of dealing with the bureaucracy and the banks and the utility companies and everything and just having to continually tell them. Um, so, and then I can't imagine doing it from Brazil to the States too, and all the extra States. And that must have been a lot. Yeah. The, the international aspect is certainly, um, uh, it's a, it's a whole nother, a whole new layer. Um, when my dad passed away, I helped a little bit with my, um, stepmom, but just briefly, I, I didn't live in town and I had to get back, um, to, to where I lived. I lived in Eugene. My parents lived in, in Ashland. And, um, so uh, there were just a few things that I did, you know, I went to the hardware store and paid off my dad's account. He was a contractor and, um, you know, little bits and pieces, but that didn't prepare me at all <laughs> for, for what I would do with a, a partner. Yeah. Well, in, in what you read and have shared, we get some of your grief story, but is there more of your grief story you'd like to tell us? Yeah, I guess. Um, uh, so w the pandemic hit Brazil in early 2020 and Rob um, broke his back the day we came back from our carnival vacation. He broke his back on a bike ride. And um, I feel like I, I learned a lot about what to expect in that moment, um, he broke his back. Uh, we were taken to a, a public hospital in Brazil. Uh, the first results of tests didn't show anything. And we had to go back to another hospital a week later to show exactly how injured he was. Um, and when I saw the, the scan from that, I could see that three of his vertebrae were smashed and um, he was still pretty, uh, adamant that he probably wouldn't need surgery. And I was like, did you see the scans? Like, did you see those pictures? I don't know what you're talking about. And, and uh, I, I kind of realized in that moment that he was not a very good narrator of his own health. Uh, and for years he had been suffering from just sort of gastrointestinal distress and had never really done anything about it and kind of, you know, would take some um, uh, anti-heartburn medication or Metamucil or something. Uh, he recovered from the back injury, uh, and when, in 2021, we went over to France so he could ride his bike on some of the Tour de France um, routes that he always watched every year. 
And when we came back from that trip in August of 2021, he, he said, I, you know, I'm just really not feeling well. I think that I need to talk to the doctor. And um, that was when he was diagnosed with stage four uh, colon cancer. And his stage four colon cancer had a BRAF mutation that made it really resistant to uh, treatment. When I learned about the BRAF mutation from the doctor, he sent it to me in a text and I just, I said, oh, well, that means that maybe he's a little bit more um, eligible for, um, for trials, for clinical trials. And the doctor said, yeah, that's the idea. And I, I waited for about three weeks before I did any of my own research on what that breath mutation meant. And I read about it and realized that it meant that Rob had probably less than a year to live. And, and that was how it panned out. Um, but in, in true Rob form, uh, he decided that, um, that that wasn't gonna be what ruled his daily existence. And he was riding his bike up until some of the last weeks of his life. Um, he, he wasn't ready to, um, to stop treatment or give up until the very last few days. Um, so it was, it, he was a real inspiration to me that way. His grace um, changed the way that I, I think about daily life. Thank you for telling us that because that how he has inspired you can inspire others. I think so too. Yeah. Well, you've been through so much and, you know, we always like to say that this is, we're not prescriptive in our discussions, but are there things that you say to others who are grieving or ways that you support others who are grieving that you'd like to share? You know, um, it's funny because I do... On my social media, I tell a lot of stories about um, my grief and and um, my daily life, even when Rob uh, was sick. And, and before that, we were both pretty present on social media. And during the pandemic, I think both of us made a lot of friends and mutual friends that we didn't know in real life. Uh, and we just kind of started talking about our our life together. And so people followed this life that we had built down in Brazil and who we were together and how much we loved each other. And so I've, I've continued that and continued to tell those stories. And because of that, I've had a number of friends, um, some of whom I know well, some of whom I don't know very well at all, um, reach out to me as they have gone through grief of their own. Uh, and so I, I realized that a lot of the support that I give is just through the storytelling that I do. I remember that when Rob was diagnosed, I was just combing the internet for, for anything that was, you know, reminiscent of what I was about to go through. Um, you know, and I was trying all of these different search terms, like um, what, what are the last few months like? Um, you know, what, what should I expect as a spouse? What, you know, and I had all these questions and just, it felt like nothing came up. Uh, and nobody's story is identical. Uh, but I do feel like I craved hearing other people's experience. I, I needed to know that, um, that I was just part of this longer arc of the sorts of things that people had gone through and uh, recovered from 
so that I could see this potential pathway, even if it was somewhat different than what I would go through myself. So I think that's been the biggest thing. And then just being an ear to listen to or to, to, to hear people. Um, I'm not nearly as good at um, some of the things like like meals and that kind of thing that some of my friends are good at. <laughs> they were really good at, at sweeping it, swooping in and uh, helping out with, with food and logistics. And um, the school that I worked for was, is, um, was incredible supporting me, supporting Rob, um, logistical support, just allowing for us to release ourselves from some of the obligations and duties that we had. Uh, so I, I try to do as much of that kind of thing as I can if someone's grieving um, or or even just you know stressed about things. It's, it's a sort of like, hey, can I can I do that for you? And I try not to ask, what can I do for you? Because the the asking feels like more of a burden. I remember when people would say that to me, they'd be like, what can I do? And I would draw a complete blank. <laughs> and say nothing, it feels like it all needs to be done by me. It all requires my signature. It all requires my presence. Uh, I can't hand over anything. And it was the friends who were able to say, I'm gonna do this for you, or um, would just come to me with a bag of groceries. Um, they just showed up. They didn't ask how they could show up. And so I, I try to think of those kinds of things when I can. Yeah. I, I love hearing that. We've had other people say that on here. And I think it's so true that it's such a common thing. Like people mean, well, I would remind myself so much when I was in my hardest grief, like people mean well, and them asking what they can do is because they don't, they want to do something. They don't know what it is, but the truth is what you just said. The helpful thing is for people just to do the thing, um, to show up with groceries because we need to eat, um, to, you know, manage any of the air and things they can manage for you. I've said this on here before, but my neighbor used to cut my grass and he never even asked me. He would just, and it would, sometimes I, I was so deep in my grief. It would take me days to realize my grass had been cut, but, yeah. but it was one of the sweetest things. Right. And, um, where I live now, there's, there's, there's not grass, but I'm, I always, always think I would, I would do that for someone else or send someone to do it. Um, I also have to, I love what you said about you sharing your story. I think that's so important. That's why we do this. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's why I'm so moved by this um, and, and why I was so honored to, to participate. Um, it, it, it really does. And, and one of the things that I've, one of the questions um, uh, that we were potentially going to talk about today, I'll just throw it out there, is, uh, is how um, grief has changed me. And, uh, you know, it's funny because I never thought of my life as a grief filled life. And my daughter said after my, um, my husband, her stepdad passed, uh, that she was talking with my sister and my sister said, how, this is my, my stepsister, but she said, how much, how much more can that woman take? <laughs> and then, and I started thinking about my life and the, the track of my life and, uh, and grief in my life and the death of both of my parents and, and divorces. And my mom was an, an addict when I was a kid. Uh, and there was a, a lot. And I realized that over my life, at first I had built up these 
walls, these sort of um, walls to, to feeling things and to experiencing things. And when my second daughter, Jillian, was born, um, she was super sensitive, super sensitive little baby. She was born in the middle of July or um, sorry, the beginning of July and it was sweltering hot. Um, and so I would sit nursing with her and we would both be basically be naked on the couch. We didn't have air conditioning. I'd have a fan blowing on me and there'd be, I'd have a squirt bottle and, and it'd be nursing her like that. And then at times she would have everything satisfied. She'd be cool. She'd be diaper changed, fed and everything like that. And she would still be upset. And I remember thinking to myself, if I'm going to be a good parent for her, I'm going to have to try to feel what she's feeling. And when I did that, I opened the floodgates and I had to deal with all of my own feelings. And since that moment, um, I wear my heart on my sleeve for Dawes to peck at. It's just uh, who I am. And, um, and every time now I experience some kind of grief and I allow myself to feel it uh, I just feel more and more connected to uh, to other people, to the universe, to my own body, um, to my own soul, and and so I, I just continue. It doesn't mean that I, you know, seeking ways to experience grief. <laughs> it's not the only way to be connected, um, but it definitely has been an avenue. Uh, your your opening bit about what grief taught you resonates deeply with me. It really, I, that gives me goosebumps because it really does. It just cracks us open in a different way. And I also love that you said you're not actively pursuing it like there are other ways, <laughs> yeah. but it does. There's just, um, we're our, our authentic selves. Like grief just cracks you open. You, you cannot be anything other than who you are. Yeah. And, and I, I told my son at one point during the course of this year, because you know his his dad died right before he entered seventh grade, and when I think back on my experience as a seventh grader, oh my gosh, that was the worst year of my life. I hated seventh grade. I hated being twelve years old. Um, everything about it was was terrible. And I said to him, I was like, man, if I knew that this had to happen, right, that that your dad had to pass, but I got to choose what year it happened, I would choose any other year in your life besides that one, right? Like that is the worst year for this to happen. And at the same time, I also feel like uh, as parents and, and as a society, we do so much to shelter our kids from experiencing things that might make them feel uncomfortable, uh, that we do them a pretty big disservice by sending them out into the world, never having experienced grief, never having understood um, death, even the way that we, you know, shelter ourselves from the source of our food, you know, and you hear stories of, you know, these eight-year-old kids who are crying in the market because they realize that chicken comes from chicken, you know, and it's like, this is, this is real life and, and death is part of that. And I think that, the more connected we get with that at a younger age, the, the earlier we can get connected with everything else. I very much agree. And for me, like I have farm animals and I see that with the kids too, that come out to my barn, like they have not experienced death of their own dogs or cats or anything. 
and it's like that is part of life and it's part of everything so when we can experience it through an animal it like builds our grief muscles stronger to experience it through the humans we love to um I think so I'm always not encouraging death but encouraging not to be sheltered from the experience of it I think it was George Carlin who said that um, a family pet is just just a, a tragedy waiting to happen. <laughs> like it, it really is, you know. But but maybe every you know five year old kid should have a goldfish um, because it, it, it's an entry point into that that discussion. Um, and and at the same time, in our society and in our films, uh, you know, we surround kids with these kind of you know, cartoonish or, or overblown um, images of death uh, and, uh, and destruction. And we don't really have any place to process that on a, a personal level. It's all spectacle. Uh, and so I think they, they sort of expect death to be this spectacle that then, you know, dissipates with some credits at the end. Uh, and that's not at all how how death or grief exists. It's sometimes in these tiny little unexpected moments, and it you know wells up in you as you're driving somewhere, and um, it's not neatly packaged or or beautifully filmed at all. And it's important for kids and adults to to grapple with that. Absolutely. And on the kid front. We also don't respawn magically in video games in the real world, yeah. Um, which is an interesting learning activity, like not getting to death, but like even getting hurt. I've had kids in my barn think like, oh, well, the next day I'll be fine. Like, it's going to take a little bit of time. You have to heal. It's <laughs> not just like hit the reset button and you're good. Yeah. Yeah. And again, that's that that kind of learning that we do through grief. At least for me, one of the things that I've really learned is the the idea that the the body, mind, soul division that especially our society likes to um, likes to hold on to, right? It's it's this comforting narrative about the divisions between our soul and our body, or our mind and our body, uh, or you know the soul and the mind, and and what I've learned is that there is no division there. Um, it's just all the same thing. And so care, care for the body is care for the soul is care for the mind. Um, you know, when, when people are focused on trying to help their mind and they're not helping their body or they're focused on their soul, um, but not on their, their minds, it's confounding to me because I feel like that, that narrative, and holding on to that narrative is like, um, it's like taking pain pills. If you break your arm, if you just take the pain pills and you never get the cast, like you're not healing, right? You're just numbing the pain. And that, that idea that everything's all divided is a nice numbing device and maybe coping mechanism for a short period of time. But we really have to, to come to reality about how, um, there is no division between those things. And um, it hel- that, that understanding has helped me a lot. Yeah, that's beautiful. Well, thank you for adding that. We always like to ask towards the end here, if there's anything else you would like to add into this conversation. 
Yeah, I think that um, today I'd like to finish by reading a poem. Uh, and it's sort of about, um, it's about resilience. It's, it's also about a tattoo that I got. I had a dream. Um, so when my dad died, I drew a picture of um, some nasturtiums. My dad and I used to grow nasturtiums together um, when I was a kid and we both each grew them in our yards. And when I drew the picture, my husband, um, Rob said, you should get that as a tattoo. <laughs> it's really cool. And I said, oh yeah, that'd be good. So I did. And then after Rob died, I had a dream that I was walking through nasturtiums with my sister and my eldest daughter, Quiva. And um, I picked up this blue snake and it was swirling around my arm in the dream. And, you know, my, my daughter's like, gee, mom, I don't know that you should pick that up. And, and my sister said, yeah, that looks kind of scary. And I said, no, it's just swirling around. It's, it's fine. Uh, and so of course, when I woke up in the morning, I was like, oh, I'm going to look up and see what that means. And, um, and the internet was filled with things about um, snakes and blue snakes being about, about transformation. And so I, thought, well, that's, that is apt. And so I added a blue snake to my nasturtium tattoo. So that's, that was part of the genesis of this poem. So here's the poem. This is not a crisis. See the snake? When she notices the sensation, the lifting of dead skin from breathing cells, she finds stillness. She pulls her body in until she can feel the air between the old and the new. She pulls away from what used to be and leaves the light feather shadow of her old self behind. If you touched her yesterday, today she is not the same. The old skin shed, she shines now new in the sun, a being never held. This is not a crisis. Thank you, Nikki. That's beautiful. Thank you. Wow. Thank you for so many amazing things that you shared with us today. Such a, such a fabulous conversation. And I just, I love listening to you and um, how you are healing and how you're putting that out in the world so that others can have that experience too. Well, thank you all so much for providing this forum, for continuing the conversation about grief, for normalizing it for, for people all over the place. Um, I just, I, I really, uh, you know, I echo the sentiment of another reader that day um, uh, that I read for Coffee Talk that what you guys have done here is a kind of miracle. And um, I'm really just uh, deeply honored to be part of it. We're really honored to have you here. It wouldn't, it wouldn't, it wouldn't happen without you. That made me all teary. You said that. And I was just like, started crying. So here I go again, but I'm a crier. I'm a crier. That's so, and, and, I'm, and I'm good with that. <laughs> exactly. All right. Well, thank you both so much. Well, thank you. If you would like to connect with us, you can find us on Facebook at the coffee and grief community. You can also email us at coffeeandgrief at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. We have coffee talks the first Thursday of every month, which is similar to this format, except there will be five different readers who will just each read a personal grief story similar to what you heard today with no conversation afterwards. 
There's a Zoom link for you to join us live. That'll be posted on our Facebook page, the Coffee and Grief. Um, we'd love to see you in that Zoom room. If there's something you'd like us to talk about, we'd like to know, please email us at coffeeandgrief at gmail.com. Uh, yeah, so we'd love to hear from you. We always love to end with saying, be good to yourself, be kind to your hearts, drink plenty of water, do something kind for yourself. And if you have the bandwidth, do something kind for another. Please come back. We love you. We love you all. Bye. Bye.